Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, <clears throat> as we have been saying, the, the Apostle John wrote that when Jesus came, he manifested his glory. That is, uh, I think, John's way of saying that Jesus' true identity was made known when he came. His identity as the light of the world, his identity as God with us, his identity as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That, what was, that is what was made known. And for a long time, uh, the word that the church has used to describe that making known is epiphany. And that is the season of the church year that we're in. Four weeks ago, uh, we started reading together from places in the Gospels where we see Jesus' glory being made manifest, being seen and made known. And we're going to continue that this morning. I'm going to read from Mark 2 for us. I'll read Mark 2 verses 1 through 12 and you can follow along uh, in the order of worship where it's printed or in a Bible. Or you can just uh, listen as I read from Mark 2. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. This is God's word and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask as we talk about this word that we have just read and heard together as we think about this this thing that Jesus did that manifested his glory. We ask that you would meet us uh, exactly where we are, that as we just sang together, um, that it would be true that you'd give our jaded senses light to whatever extent our senses are jaded and need it. Father, show us the grace and love and mercy of Jesus and change us by it, whoever we are, wherever we find ourselves. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, when I was uh, a kid, I think I was about 11 or 12 years old, uh, I fell in love with a bike that I saw uh, advertised in a comic book. Uh, it was the, the Schwinn Phantom Scrambler. Now, I, I already had a bike. Uh, this bike that I had was one of those uh, yard sale situations. Probably could have been had for about five or 10 bucks. It was no doubt put together from 
parts of a couple other bikes. It was uh, spray painted all black. <laughs> and I couldn't see this at the time, um, but the bike that I had was probably the coolest bike I've ever had in my life. It's probably still out there somewhere being ridden by a kid. Uh, and like pretty much all of my peers at the time, I spent just about every minute I wasn't in school, every minute I wasn't sleeping, riding around on that yard sale bike. But it was not a Schwinn Phantom Scrambler. <laughs> and so that comic book ad had gotten to me so much that I started regularly pestering my parents to get me that Schwinn. My dad was always patient, he was always kind, and he was always insistent when he would remind me that I already had a perfectly good bike and that we could not afford uh, to buy a new one. So one day, here's what I did. I went to the freezer <laughs> where my parents hid the grocery money, and I counted it. Uh, I counted that money, the grocery money. This is something people used to do, by the way, uh, before digital banking. They would hide cash that they knew they, they needed to spend later on. Sometime soon, they'd hide cash around their house. I don't know why ours was in the freezer, but that's not the point. The point is, I counted that money, and by my reckoning, we could indeed afford a Schwinn Phantom Scrambler. So I thought I had this airtight argument, but when I brought that argument to my dad, he at first agreed that we could, yes, we could buy a new bike with the grocery money, and then he connected the dots for this goofball son of his, and he said, if we did that, we wouldn't have any food to eat for the next month. I thought I knew what I needed, but I was not exactly looking at the larger story. And honestly, when those guys lower their friend down through the roof in front of Jesus, everybody, everybody knew what that guy needed, right? Everybody in that house, spilling out of that house, into the, the street out front of that house, all of those disciples who were there and would-be disciples, all of the, the curious and the skeptical ones, they all, they all knew what that guy needed in that moment, right? They knew what he needed. It wasn't exactly a complicated puzzle, but Jesus looks at that guy and with great tenderness he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And I'm sure it felt to some like Jesus had missed the point, but the glory in the house that day. <laughs> the epiphany under the roof in Capernaum was that Jesus was not missing a thing. He was in no way blind to that man's obvious need. Jesus' glory is that he doesn't just see the larger story, he is the one who writes the larger story. That is his glory, and that is as true right now in this very moment as we sit here together as it was then in that house at Capernaum. And that means that he is worthy of your trust and of mine. So when this happened, Jesus had just returned uh, to Capernaum after his very first mission into the towns and villages of Galilee. He's preached, he's taught, he's healed, he's delivered people from oppression, and people are starting to really take notice of him. Mark puts it like this, Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but he would go out to the desolate places, and people would come to him from every quarter. So Capernaum appears to have been the base for that mission in Galilee, and now he's returned, and the people have heard that he's home, 
And that leads to that large gathering that was in the house where he was staying. Houses in first century Capernaum were not large. Think maybe 16 or 17 feet wide. So it wouldn't take a whole lot of people to fill one up. To fill up the entryway, to spill out in the walkways that were between the homes. And that's what Mark means for us to imagine when he says there was no room for anybody, not even at the door. And Jesus is in there and he is preaching the word. Now we don't know exactly what it was that Jesus was talking about. But I will say that it is uh, worth mentioning that the very first words that Jesus says in Mark's gospel. The very first thing that Jesus says when he comes onto the scene is this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe this good news. In other words, the peaceable and gracious reign of God has arrived, it's here. And as far as Jesus was concerned, that meant that you had to turn away from everything that was not that. Everything that was not that peaceable and gracious reign of God. And you had to turn away from everything that wasn't fitting, that wasn't right to be in that kingdom. And you had to believe. And that was a deeply provocative thing to say. And a deeply compelling thing to say to people who looked around and who saw how messed up things were in the world they lived in. And also to people who had the courage enough or maybe the despair enough to look at themselves and to admit that things weren't just, you know, messed up out there. The kingdom of God spoke of something new. It spoke of hope. And it still does. It still is provocative. It still is compelling, honestly, this call to, to repent, to turn away from everything that isn't that rain, and to believe. And it's still challenging. You know, what would it look like to trust the man who is talking about it enough to believe it? What would it look like to believe that this is true? Well, Mark is glad that you asked. <laughs> they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. They can't get near to Jesus because of that aforementioned crowd, so of course they just uh, remove the roof above him. You know, Mark says it in such a matter-of-fact way, like people did this every day. They tore up roofs every day, which they did not. There was usually roof access on houses like the one that Jesus was in. I like to think of it as kind of like a deck. You know, people would go up there, they'd get some fresh air, they'd get some sun, uh, they'd go up there to cook or to dry clothes or to pray. So getting up there was not strange, it probably wasn't even that difficult, but ripping up the reeds and the branches and the dried mud that made up the roof, that was strange, and that was difficult to do. It took some beautiful, audacious, hard-nosed tenacity to pull it off. It took guts. And I'm sure as soon as that noise started, as soon as the sunlight started to filter into that room where Jesus was, all eyes were on them, including Jesus' eyes. And Mark writes that Jesus saw their faith. This is the very first mention of the word faith in Mark's gospel. And I think it is pretty telling that it is clearly about doing something. If you want to know what it looks like to believe, you know, if you want to know what it looks like to have faith in Jesus, this is it. It looks like getting in the way of Jesus. 
It looks like getting around him. It looks like getting near him however you can because you think he might do you some good. That's what it looks like to believe. It's getting near Jesus because he might do you some good. I mean, clearly, you know, these guys had thoughts about Jesus. They had some ideas up in their heads about Jesus. I'm sure they talked about those ideas, compared notes about those ideas. Maybe they even felt something about Jesus. But the thing that gets seen as an indicator of faith that day isn't the stuff they thought. It is not the stuff they felt. It was the carrying around and the climbing up and the lowering down. It was the property destruction. (laughs) Jesus saw their faith. And that's at least one of the things this story has always taught the church. That our faith in Jesus, it's not just a bunch of things. It isn't a bunch of things on some uh, invisible checklist floating around somewhere that we think about him in our heads in the abstract. Faith in Jesus looks like getting around him. However you can. Faith in Jesus looks like abiding in him once you're there. And faith in Jesus looks like taking it really seriously when you've noticed that you're wandering away and heading back as quick as you can to be near him, to get in his way again. That's what faith looks like. That's what it is. And you and I, we get near Jesus primarily through these means of grace that he has graciously given to the church. That's how we get near him, through prayer, through scripture, through worship together, through the sacraments. And sometimes, you know, the truth is we we do that in really viscerally physical ways too. We get near Jesus in really flesh and blood ways. Like when we remove ourselves from situations that aren't doing anybody any good. When we do that, we're getting back near to Jesus. We do it in physical ways like caring for the poor and the stranger and the prisoner. You remember what Jesus said about that, right? He said, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. That's how we get near Jesus, when we serve our neighbor in his name. That's what faith looks like. And these men came to Jesus in faith, and he saw it. And that's when he shook that whole place up, and he looked at the man on that mat, and he said, with great tenderness, Son, your sins are forgiven. I mean, Jesus does stuff like this all the time. He sets everybody up for that holy uppercut that you know is definitely going to come. But before we get to that, church, I don't want us to miss this incredible thing that he has already done. The incredible thing that he has already done, church, he forgave that man of his sins. Not because that guy did a good job obeying the law. Not because he promised he would keep his nose clean. Not because he had good parents or something. Church, he didn't forgive that man of his sins because that man asked to be forgiven. Because he didn't ask to be forgiven. Jesus forgave that man of his sins. The only way any of us have ever been forgiven by Jesus or ever will be. He forgave that man of his sins by grace. Do not forget it. (laughs) Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I mean, Jesus knew. He knew 
what was expected of him in that moment. He knew what people wanted him to do. But as the second century church father Clement said it, Jesus cares for the whole of his creature. We do a pretty good job, I think, of imagining of ourselves who we are as somehow being carved up into beings of body on the one hand and soul on the other. Like there's this spiritual part of us and then there's this physical part of us and they're somehow separate from each other. And once you do that, once you do that, it's, it's not too hard to somehow begin to value one more than the other. But church, I'm telling you, that's not who we are. And church, when, when Jesus came to redeem this world, he came to redeem all of it. When he came to heal this world, I'm telling you, he came to heal all of it. And if he redeems you and he redeems me, he will redeem all of you and all of me. Every part of us, blessed be the Lord. Blessed be the Lord, the psalm writer says, who forgives your iniquity and heals all your diseases, who satisfies you with good. Blessed be the Lord. So maybe it goes without saying, but I will be sure that I say it anyway. (laughs) People were not supposed to say things like, son, your sins are forgiven. I mean, a priest could say something like, like that, something, you know, that's kind of like that after the proper sacrifices had been made in the temple. That was well within the established boundaries. I mean, nobody thought a priest was actually doing the forgiving. He was just making an observation, really. And that was fine, but that is most emphatically not what Jesus was doing. And you don't have to take my word for that because the scribes do all the homework for us. They think, why does this man speak like that? Who can forgive sins but but God alone? He's blaspheming. And here comes comes the uppercut. (laughs) Jesus knows what the scribes are thinking, and the truth is they're on to something. Their instincts are, are good as far as they go. Nobody, nobody should steal the divine prerogative of forgiveness. Nobody better do that. And on the face of it then, what Jesus said was was outrageous. And of course, there's a deep irony here because that charge of blasphemy, it's the one that sticks in the end. It's the one that gets him convicted. It's the one that gets him led to the cross. And that moment there in the house in Capernaum, it's like a marker that gets thrown down. That moment in the house in Capernaum is like a deposit against that day when in the scandal that lies at the heart of our faith, Jesus' glory is seen most vividly and most clearly. His life for ours. His life for our life. In his cross, in his death, his resurrection, and in his ascension, so that he can lead sisters and brothers to glory behind him and with him. And to follow him in the faith and repentance, the faith and repentance that Jesus had called for as soon as he came onto the scene, the first words out of his mouth, to follow Jesus in faith and repentance is to be certain that we will be led safely home in the end. 
But Jesus knows what these words that he has said, he knows what they, they sound like to everybody there. And that's why he said them. And that's why he throws out this little riddle, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and take up your bed and walk. I mean, I think that the way Jesus is drawing everybody in is clear enough at first. It'd be easier to say your sins are forgiven um, because there'd no way, be no way to know if that's actually true. You couldn't tell by looking at somebody. It's a lot harder to say rise and walk because the proof of the pudding is in the eating. I mean, in short order, someone's going to know if you're a fraud or not. And this is really the point that Jesus means to lead us to. This is the moment in the house at Capernaum. Saying something is easy or hard... It isn't really the thing that matters, it's the doing that matters. What matters is who can do this. Who can do this for people like you and me. Who can care for the whole of his creatures? Who, who will do it? Who will care for the whole of his creature? Who can make all things new? This is the moment that Jesus has graciously and kindly led that crowd to and the scribes and that man on the mat and his friends on the roof and you and me too. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And church, that is exactly what happened. He carried the mat that had once carried him right out of that door. All of him, all of him a new creation by grace. That was the epiphany that day. <laughs> that was the glory of Jesus revealed under the roof in that little house in Capernaum. He doesn't simply know the larger story. He is the one who writes it. His is the true story of the world. He is not presuming on the divine prerogatives of forgiveness or healing. Forgiveness and healing are his. They belong to him. And the people couldn't help themselves. <laughs> they glorify God. They said, we have never seen anything like this. And the invitation for you and for me is to join them, to stand beside them in that house, and to find Jesus worthy of our trust. Get near him and abide with him once you're there and come back if you've wandered away. Let me pray for us. Father, help us to be uh, like those... <laughs> like those people in that house who were amazed and who glorified you, we give you glory. And we say you are blessed because yours are the prerogatives of forgiveness and healing and you have promised you will do both for those who follow you in faith. So Father, strengthen us in our belief. Help us to stay near your son and to come back when we wander away so that we will grow in our own faith so that we can be a people who put that faith into flesh and blood in this broken world all around us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.